Hello, everybody, and welcome to the September 10th session of the St. Cyril and Methodius Institute. Now, although our schedule says that we were supposed to do an overview of salvation history last week, unfortunately, due to some technical glitches, it's only really this week that we're getting around to it. Um, so we're going to consider our topic for this week to be salvation history overview and salvation history part two. Um, before we get into our first topic, the early world, um, which will set the plot for the rest of the story of salvation history as expressed through Holy Scripture, I want to take a moment to look at the Holy Scripture that we're going to be discussing. Um, I think that there's often a tendency to um, misunderstand the audiences, uh, the writers, and the ways in which these, um, these books were written. And I think that it's very important for us as we, um, as we think about uh, what it is that we're hearing and what it is that we're studying to have a proper appreciation for the many genres of literature that are present in the Bible. Um, first off, we have the Pentateuch, um, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are, again, like all scripture, can be read on four different levels but are predominantly historical documents, um, joined with them as historical narratives, uh, as epics, if you, if you will. We also have the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Jonah, and Acts. Um, we'll find a lot about early Hebrew law, in the last half of Exodus, as well as Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, we'll find more philosophical works um, in Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Uh, we'll find great hymns to the Lord in Psalms, uh, the Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. We'll find prophecy with the minor prophets of the Old Testament in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. We'll find apocalyptic literature not only in the book of Revelation, but also in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Naturally, we'll find the gospel that is the good news, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Then we'll find uh, an epistolary tradition. We'll find uh, letters um, that, of course, have been written from from followers uh, by followers of Christ to those who to those churches that are growing. And that's what we'll see in Romans, the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrew, James, Peter, John, and Jude. Um, I'll add, although we're not going to launch a full inquiry into the um, into the the nature of all of these books, that many scripture scholars um, uh, debate the historicity of Esther, Judah, Tobit, 
and Ruth, and some believe them to be allegory. Um, I think that's a great uh, thing for you to uh, keep on your mind, uh, to think about it, and to share what you think with us going forward. So that's kind of our, our little exposition piece on what is Holy Scripture. Um, again, and as always, we are just looking at this from 30,000 feet. Any questions, comments, or concerns, I'd love to hear them. I'd love to share them with the group. Um, and that will give us an opportunity to further dive into uh, the questions that you're hungering to answer. But until then, let's take a look at the early world. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from that, we have our first parents, Adam and Eve. From Adam and Eve came Cain, Abel, and Seth, and numerous others. Um, but as we focus on the, uh, the map of salvation history, if you will, we're looking at these specific groups as different steps in the covenant. So the early world first considers Adam and Eve um, with the fall. Then we are able to consider Cain, Abel, and Seth uh, with the curse and the promise. Then we're able to consider Noah with the flood. And then we see the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth scattered at the Tower of Babel. But we go back to Adam and Eve. Because the choice that Adam and Eve have, and forgive me, because I know that many of you have participated in the Jeff Cabot's Bible study, and as we as we get ready to dive deeper, a lot of this is going to be some of the most primordial and primary knowledge that we have as Catholics. Um, uh, we, we might be reinventing the wheel here, but I do feel it's important to start from the very beginning. Um, as Maria von Trapp says, it's a very good place to start. So we start with Adam and Eve, and we look at exactly what happened there. What did happen there? In essence, they were asked to choose between accepting God's rule over them and becoming their own gods, or at least thinking that they would become their own gods. And isn't that the same thing that happens to us today? It's the same thing that happens to our offspring in the future. It's the same thing that has happened to every generation going back to Adam and Eve. So this is not just a Bible story, but this is the primordial beginning of the human condition literally because because of their decision we have sin enter the world we have concupiscence enter the world we have the fact that we come out of the womb ready to sin that doesn't make humans inherently bad but it does make us inherently in need of a savior but adam and eve did not warrant the savior quite yet they failed to trust God, and they followed the, the serpent instead. They made a decision to go their own way instead of God's way. And because of this, they had the robe of glory taken away from them. They 
were removed from God's friendship. They removed themselves from God's friendship. And this is the basis of so much of our moral theology. We God, God does not go away from us. We go away from God. And yet time and time again, God will offer us. God will follow after us and he will invite us back. Discipleship, the Christian life, is accepting that invitation back even if we end up going away from him again. All relationships are built on good communication, right? Why should this be any different? And in some ways, Holy Scripture never really changes that much. Um, we see the consequences of the fall are evident immediately in the story, just as the consequences of the fall are evident in our day to day. Um, in our contemporary times. What happens? Cain kills Abel, and from Cain grows a civilization that is violent and vengeful. So vengeful and violent that by the time of Noah, the world is full of wickedness. And immediately after the flood, Noah, the only righteous man left on earth, mind you, Noah, gets drunk, his son sin, and his grandson is cursed. Wow. That, that just went downhill really quickly. And so yet again, the earth is again filled with people who seek to make a name for themselves. And that's a weird idiom that we use in English, to make a name for yourself. And it actually comes to us from Hebrew, because what is a name? A name is just, it's much more than a collection of sounds and letters that we call ourselves but it identifies us on a deeper level. It gives us meaning on a deeper level. And that puts it, that gives it power. That puts it, that, that God has a name, does he not? We call things by their right name. And when we read about people seeking to make a name for themselves, that's nothing less than the terrible sins of pride, than people who are again trying to put themselves on par with God. And this is exemplified in no better place than in the story of the Tower of Babel. Because they are literally trying to compete with God. They are literally trying to build a tower up to heaven so that they don't have to follow God, but are going to go their own way instead. And of course, that never works. You can't build a tower to heaven. But in the Hebrew, it is very interesting that the Lord, um, the Lord makes particular fun of their, fun of their tower, and the Scripture actually says in Hebrew that He came down to look at their tower, which is a hilarious ancient diss on these people and how well their tower, excuse me, how well their tower construction was going. Uh, in this, God's literally in the writer. They're making fun of how short the tower was. All right. So, what hope is given in this terrible story that the situation will be redeemed? Well, let's turn to Genesis 3.15. And I will put an enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, in this scripture, we hear God announce 
that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. In other words, there will one day be a battle in which a human will deal the devil a death blow. The fact that God barred further access to the eternal life without any of this um, offers a second ray of hope to the situation. His children will not be allowed to make their separated state permanent. Okay. Now, so we're not we're not going to be spiritually dead forever. The Lord has a plan to bring us back. Okay. But the Lord also had a plan to bring Noah's progeny back. What happened there? Did that solution to the problem of wickedness work? Why or why not? The consequences of the fall are so ingrained. Again, we talk about that concupiscence even from the time of Adam and Eve, that not even wiping out the bad guys and starting over with a righteous man, Noah, makes a difference. The post-flood population is no better than the people who preceded it. The effects of the fall will not be limited to those who caused it. And what this is, is that original sin that we talked about. The internal consequences of that first decision to turn away from God that goes through the generations. And isn't that something we see more today? Do we not see broken families when God's will for us, when God's plan for us is ignored and people choose to go their own their own depraved route? Um, this is something that is plainly clear to us in society today, and it's something that's by no means new. So here we are at the close of the early world period. Where are we at? Where is humanity at? The people of Babel desire to make a name for themselves. And that sets them against those like Noah who call on God's name, or at least often call on God's name. As a consequence, God confuses their language, which is especially significant when you consider that Christ is the word, the logos of God. Language is going to play a big role in salvation history. Uh, God confuses their language and scatters them across the earth. Their inability to communicate and their scattered state are, in effect, a vivid physical manifestation of their spiritual reality. Did you know that Adam was the first high priest? In Hebrew, the verbs avad and shamar appear over 500 times in the Old Testament. Normally, they're used in the context of priestly worship, where they're translated as serve and protect. However, a handful of times, they're used to mean till and keep with Adam. So, was Adam just a very good gardener? No, he was a high priest of the Lord Almighty. Phase two, the patriarchs. Now, a few moments ago when we last left humanity, they had been scattered scattered across the earth as a vivid physical manifestation of their spiritual reality, of their 
their fall from grace with the Lord. But as always, God wants to bring us back to him. So what was his first step in this age of the patriarchs to affect this? Was it to take everybody back? No. Was it to kill everybody off? Again, no. Rather, he began by calling one man, Abraham, to leave everything behind and to leave this land in which the Tower of Babel was being built, um, to step away from the stepped towers and the ziggurats that he knew, to leave everything behind and to follow him, the Lord Almighty, to a new land, which he would show him. And this restoration is implicit with the blessing he gives Abraham, by whom all of the families of the earth will bless themselves. Now, in the, we're talking about patriarchs. Patriarch literally means father in the sense that we use forefathers or founding fathers. So if, if you wish, we could consider Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, the founding fathers. I just ask you not to imagine them with powdered white wigs, which is not at all how they looked. Um, also, some historians uh, and scripture scholars um, include Jacob's son, sons, particularly Joseph, um, as patriarchs. Um, but just in general, we want to think of, at this point in time, a covenant, a, again, a relationship <clears throat> um, between the Lord and between his people that is beginning to widen in scope, uh, which with each successive generation, it includes more people. And I think this is a really good time to talk a little bit about what a covenant exactly is before we look at the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Um, a covenant is not an agreement. That is not a very Semitic, that is not a very ancient way of looking at the covenant. The covenant was essentially a gift from a stronger party to a weaker party, a promise to protect them, a promise to have them live in your love. And so because of that, I think it's dangerous to think of any covenant, but especially God's covenants, um, as agreements that he makes with people. No, these are things that we receive freely from his gift love, but also things that aren't really up to us to accept or uh, deny. We're getting them no matter what. Um, now, that being said, we have to live within the rules of the covenant. Um, we are not saying that uh, everybody is saved just by the fact that God loves them. But no, we have to return that love to be with him in heaven. Uh, anything else wouldn't make sense. So what promises does God make to Abraham? Genesis 1, chap, um, excuse me, sorry, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse, and by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. Now, we can break this promise down into three constituent parts. 
First of all, a promise of land for his many descendants. Two, a promise of a nation and a great name. And three, a promise of worldwide blessing. Uh, we also often look at the second promise of a nation as the promise of royal kingdom because later on in Genesis, God tells Abraham that that is also his plan for them. So notice that in the fulfillment of this promise and in return for Abraham's faithful obedience, God will give Abraham's family what he did not allow the people at Babel to achieve for themselves. Why? All good things come from God. We cannot get good things outside of God's love and mercy. So, he's made these great promises to Abraham's offspring. These following generations, let's look at them. The promises of God passed down from Abraham to his son by Sarah, Isaac. Isaac was the son of Sarah and Abraham, as opposed to Ishmael, who was the son of Abraham and Hagar. To Isaac's son, Jacob, and then from Jacob to his sons, Judah and Joseph, through his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Eventually, this promise, this covenant that is continuing to get larger and larger and larger, would extend to all mankind, dot, 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 through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the universal, holy, apostolic, Catholic Church. So we just kind of did just a little bit of a, a surprise, a little bit of a spoiler right there. That's where we're going with all of this. That's what we're building up to. And that's what we're looking at in, uh, that's what we're, we're um, examining in the Old Testament and seeing where that is a promise, a covenant, something that the Lord has promised to Abraham and that he promises to us. And that this has been God's plan from literally time immemorial. So, what happens with these generations? Those promises to Abraham are elaborated on later in his life, especially in Genesis 15, 17, and 22. Each time the promise builds, gets bigger, until it becomes a covenant promise to give Abraham's descendants a land to establish them as a kingdom and to make them a source of worldwide blessing. This Abrahamic covenant gives us a blueprint for understanding the rest of the Bible, which is basically the story of the way God makes good on those promises. Look at the patriarchs. Um, um, sorry, this is going to be a document that I'm going to attach. Uh, look at the patriarchs period on the chart um, that we have posted on Canvas to make, um, sorry, to get an idea of where the story is going in the future. Sorry, my notes are regressive. I already spoiled it for you. Um, each time God fulfills one of the promises, he'll make another covenant with his people. From the Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant identify the people through whom the future covenants will be made that bring to fulfillment the three promises made to Abraham. Hint, it's going to be the land promise in Moses, the kingdom promise in David, and the promise of world, worldwide blessing in Jesus Christ. So, over and over and over again, humanity is given this one question. Will you trust God? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place, which was which he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was to go. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city, 
which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was ready to offer up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your descendants be named. He considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead, hence figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And that concludes our brief exploration of the patriarchs. Now, questions, comments, concerns, this is the sort of thing that I live for. Um, write in, email me, message me, um, communicate through the Canvas forum. We're going to have a Canvas, our first Canvas discussion is actually going to open um, today, uh, the 10th that you're reading this. Uh, so we're going to take a moment to really discuss about what you've heard here, what you know from way, way, way back, because of course this is some of the most, uh, the part of our faith that is the most um, uh, studied and talked about. Um, this, the, you know, these are the Bible stories that everybody knows. Um, anyway, so take a moment, um, think about what's new to you, think about how this has changed you, uh, think about how you can respond better to trust in the Lord. Hint, we all can. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll talk. So have a great day. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.